to episode nine of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And joining us this week as special guest is film critic and cinematic busybody Hayley Inch. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yes, always a pleasure. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at Girl Asleep, Captain Fantastic, um, the highlights of what's screening currently on Mubi. But first, we'll look at Clint Eastwood's Sully. No one warned us. No one said you were going to lose both engines at a lower altitude than any jet in history. This was dual engine loss at 2,800 feet, followed by an immediate water landing with 155 souls on board. No one has ever trained for an incident like that. Sully is, yes, as mentioned, the latest film from Clint Eastwood. So, of course, we all know the story of how, in early 2009, Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger landed his US Airways plane onto the Hudson River after the plane was stricken by bird strike in both engines and he saved all 155 souls on board. Now, with that flight only lasting 208 seconds, as is repeated often by star Tom (laughs) Hanks... You would think that maybe there wasn't enough material for this movie to be made, but Clint Eastwood, um, a favourite American hero, thinks differently. So the veteran director focuses more fully on the safety briefings that followed the flight than the flight itself, um, as officials attempted to determine if this was indeed the only outcome that could have saved all the passengers or if Sully was endangering the lives of those on board and also the very important um, shell of the plane that, that he destroyed when landing in the Hudson. Prepare to watch many a flight simulation in this movie. Um, <laughs> probably one of Clint Eastwood's favourite things to do, as is determined by this movie. Anyway, um, what do we think of it, Haley? I'm so mad at Clint Eastwood right now because he lured me in with a plane crash movie. I'm a ghoul and I love a good plane crash movie. And to be fair, I feel like the crash sequences in this film are far and away the best parts of the film. And I'm glad that it loops back on them like several times because every time we kind of went back to there, I just kind of got this big injection of, oh, we're at the exciting part of the movie again where people do heroic things. And I feel like the the, the hosties shouts of, you know, heads down, Stay mm. down. That still gives me chills now, just thinking of it. But unfortunately, the crash sequences do comprise a very tiny part of the film in comparison to the long, drawn out, <laughs> really, really arduous sequences where there's all these people in suits looking at Sully going like, oh, couldn't you have done something else than this? And he's just like, uh, no. Really arduous and really predictable and uninventive as well. There's a mm. lot of focusing on bureaucracy and, you know, the corporate, the heartless corporates who who doubt, you know, Tom Hanks as Sully's humanitarianism. And anyway, it's, yeah, very strange kind of setup. You know, how dare people care about safety instead of America's heroes? Mm. Yeah, that's the one thing that really struck me about this film is that Clint Eastwood seems to have made built a career on building up masculine hero, um, heroes and put them through various difficult situations like um, in Unforgiven or American Soldier or even a lot of his earlier stuff you know, to do with the Westerns. And I feel like if he's digging this deep to find an American hero in 2016, then this really says a lot more about America than he intends it to, I think. Because even before we began, I think I turned to you in the cinema and said, I bet you 10 bucks we're going to see an American flag against a grey sky at some point. <laughs> and vindication did not, did not take long for that to happen. So I thought this was a really minor film for him, and it was a very, about a very minor hero told in a really minor, kind of low-key way. Mm. And he, he seemed to really struggle to build up the boogeyman of the bureaucracy. 
And we never really got to know that much about the background of Sully because it was all seen through the lens of this accident. You know, there's just references made to his his history as being a good pilot. I agree. They're just, I feel like this wasn't a significant enough event in America's history to kind of justify an entire Mm. movie being made about it. Perhaps if it explored more about, I don't know, aviation disaster rather than just, you know, the 208 seconds and a Mm. slow fallout Mm. of, Mm. of one man's life. Even if you just gone like far more straight hagiographic let's just look at the life of Sully Sullenberger you know Mm. a lot more of the flashback scenes of him learning how to fly as a child and uh, flying in the air force and things like that oh my god I I hated that scene where it's like (laughs) he he says what you know all I'm good for is flying a plane I'm you know so how can they take that away from me now Mm. and then immediately as predicted by probably everyone in the audience there's a flashback to him being praised by his pilot father is this this great young pilot. Mm. Anyway. I, f- I feel like there are even something as cliched as that would have been a hell of a lot more interesting than what we actually got for most of this <laughs> yeah, film. Which was, I think we saw the, cra- the the landing on the water three times and then we saw mm. four different reenactments mm. of it. Mm. And a lot of people are praising that presentation mm. of several different perspectives. I agree mm. that with the crash landing, that's quite interesting, but the fact that we saw four simulations was just kind of dragged oh, on The flight and simulations on. were just like die and I'm a plane nerd I like this crap you know Mm. and even I was sitting there just going like normally I'd be really excited to see an Airbus simulation Mm. suite but not (laughs) maybe in a documentary about aviation not in the middle of a dramatic feature Mm. film Mm. Mm. I do want to give a shout out well several shout outs one to Tom Hanks's moustache yeah. One to Aaron yeah. Eckhart's <gasps> glorious moustache. Eckhart's moustache yeah. is the best cinematic <laughs> moustache I've seen in years. Yeah, we're, we're um, fanning about it in the recording studio right now. Fantastic. Yes. Ta- oh, I like that. But my third sh- shout-out is to Anna Gunn, who actually, <gasps> given very limited, very clichéd material to work with, actually did extraordinarily well. So she was maybe the the second in command to the main corporate baddie. It did take her, you know, several minutes. I think maybe it wasn't until there was a second cut to the boardroom that she actually got a line apart, you know, because every every other man in the room was talking. In the in the court scenes where they're investigating, you know, Tom Hanks gives his heartfelt speech about how he cares about humanity and, and Anna Gunn's character immediately kind of has this turnaround where she realises, and it all happens too quickly yeah. and too neatly, mm, but she yeah. realises yeah. Like, oh my god, he really did care. What are we doing? I'm an evil corporate baddie. <laughs> but so she has But that's the thing, she did it all with her face. No, and that's really, really extraordinary. And she, her quivering lip, just how nervous she was to be admitting that she was in the wrong. Mm. She gave this extraordinary speech and I really want to praise her mm. for that because the material was was kind of deplorable actually. Mm. Mm. Yeah. As as we can also see with poor Laura Linney, who didn't have a scene yes. where she wasn't on a phone. Mm. Oh my god, I made a joke on Twitter about that before I saw the movie. Like, I oh, can't wait to watch Sally tonight and see see Laura Linney on the phone. <laughs> and she did nothing but be on the phone, mm. very sadly. Yeah. Um, Big plus was the 84-minute runtime, though. <gasps> that, that was great. That was haven't nice. had a Clint film that short in yeah. God knows how long. It's pretty yeah. rare for films to be that short at all, mm. I think. 
Yeah, true, which I think also means that maybe, especially given I think at least 15 minutes of this film was unnecessary, that he shouldn't have made it in the first place. Can we make mention of the really bizarre sequence over the closing credits? Yes, yes, we should. Oh, God. So, so over the closing credits, you actually see footage of the actual Sully and all of the actual passengers from the flight. You see his wife, and they're all just talking in these really bizarre, generic, you know, oh, this... This event, um, it, it made us believe in America again. And that's sort of like really full-on jingoistic, just, you know. And, you know, if it had been any other film than a Clint Eastwood film, I would have thought it was really bizarre and out of place. But because it's an Eastwood film, you sit there just going like, oh, I'm surprised this didn't, this wasn't the entire movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the music as well. Is yeah. Eastwood, being Eastwood. Yeah, I mean, it almost was. I maybe I'm going to sound a bit callous when I say this, but there was a shot early on where they've they've all gotten off the plane, and well, you know, we assume that all passengers are off the plane safely, and Tom Hanks looks at the sinking wreckage of his plane in this really romantic, sad way. In kind of, and we're meant to feel on side with him that oh shit he's actually lost a plane and he's connected to this machine and it's something like part of him is sinking in the river along with the plane anyway it kind of it reminded me of a a shot in any of the titanic movies (laughs) where the captain thinks about what is happening to his boat and he he gets really sad about it because obviously he's about to cause the death of 2,000 people and also the sinking of this magnificent ship. And I felt like that Clint Eastwood was trying to achieve the same thing with that shot, but they're just not on par, Mm, basically. And I, yeah, I got a little bit angry at how maybe this was just trying to overemphasize the American hero and the American tragedy. Well, I just feel like he treated it like a mythology Mm. that doesn't Mm. exist. And so there was this desperate need to try and reinforce the seriousness of this and how there were 155 souls, you know, sort of Mm. continuing reference. And like you were saying with Titanic, that myth is already there. So there's already a level to engage. Whereas this, I think it might play well in in New York and then outside. I really think it needed to be told in a better way to be able to really capture anybody's imagination. Yeah, I've read some reviews, and maybe all of these reviewers were based in New York, I can't recall exactly, but who said that this is a film that is genuinely shocking and, like, genuinely engaging. I mean, I didn't see that... Nothing shocked me. It did exactly what I was expecting it to do and no more. Yeah, I kind of feel like, apart from the crash crash sequences, which I felt were really nicely tensioned... Um, it had really nice level of tension, and I was really engaged throughout those sequences, but to have them peppered through with just all this boring bureaucracy mm. where Eastwood is, like, shaking a finger at you, just going, like, mm. look at all these terrible people doubting this hero. Mm. It's just, like, it's, oh, it's just been, it's done, it's just so heavy-handed. Mm. Yeah. But it is, you know, it does have some interesting cinematography, and it is short, so, you know, nice moustaches. <laughs> so. mm. Great moustaches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Sully, and it's playing nationally. Oh, yeah. Come on, lights out. Comfy. Not sweetheart. We like you, new girl. He's not invited. So did you want to hang out? You should stay for tea, Elliot. I'm making Chinese. Greta's turning 15 soon. You should have, like, an awesome party or something. 
I'll get you a new dress and we'll get your hair and makeup done. We can all do it. Ta-da! No party, all right? Now to Girl Asleep which is a Australian film that tells the coming-of-age story of 14-year-old Greta, who's played by Bethany Whitmore. Um, in the film, is, which is also short, I think it's a mere 77 minutes. <gasps> yeah. At 74, yeah. I really? something really? like okay. that. Yeah, yeah. very, okay. very well, brief. The Excellent. film doesn't waste any time before um, in introducing us to her family, characters at her new school, and in every scene, her nervousness and troubles with self-expression is, becomes readily apparent. To help her get over these sorts of problems, her mother decides to throw her a 15th birthday party to which she invites her entire class. So this situation gives rise to all the anxiety you can imagine. Eloise, what did you make of Girl Asleep? I really love this movie. I feel like I can't say enough nice things about it. It just, it kind of had me on board. It had, you know, it has its own kind of internal logic where it tries, it follows the psychological trajectory of Greta Driscoll as this 14 year old who is isolated in a new school and kind of feels out of place from her friends and family. And just immediately I was on board. So it's adapted from a stage play and it is obvious that it has those roots. There's a lot of still camera scenes, you know, just kind of tableau set up. But it also does a lot of really interesting cinematic um, stuff with camera um, and with, you know, explorations through through darkness and use of maybe fantasy sequences. But from the first scene, which is just this shot of Greta sitting in the schoolyard at recess um, alone and then her, her new, her future friend Elliot comes and sits next to her and his is a really wonderful wonderful performance as well. Uh, Harrison Feldman. Harrison Feldman, yeah. It's just, it's so glorious and so catchy just the way that he presents himself. But they're sitting there and, and he's trying to, you know, kind of make friends with her and he says, we're going to be friends now. This is going to be the dawn of a new era. And the second that he says that, the camera starts this really slow pan in to them. And you, so it just kind of starts from uh, afar and then gets a little bit closer and closer. So you kind of get into the rhythm of, of their conversation. And I thought that was a really beautiful moment that just kind of like links up the, the, his character portrayal with, you know, the way that the film kind of moves ahead. I loved it. And then there's moments, you know, where she kind of, she has this magical, or not magical, but she has a musical jewel box um, with like a little animal creatures in it. And occasionally she kind of imagines that those animal creatures are real and they become these human sized animals in kind of like a cartoonish, but also a really just uncanny and unsettling mm. way. And that all of those sequences are done really well. So yeah, mm. it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I was really strongly impressed, kind of like how you were saying that even though it's based on a theatre production, clearly there's been so much care taken to make this film as uniquely cinematic as possible and Mm. to really take advantage of what cinema can do when you're telling a story. And I really like the fact that they they don't betray at all the theatre roots, but they're clearly really relishing being able to take hold of this new medium and Mm. this new interpretation of telling the story. I was also seriously impressed with this film I feel like there's very few representations of teen girls on screen Mm. that actually even goes anywhere close to really showing like particularly on just a psychological and emotional level how scary it is Mm. and how having to let go of childhood isn't something that happens instantaneously for a lot of girls like it's a very long drawn out terrifying anxiety-driven process of realising you're on the cusp of something and not sure if you're actually 
ready for all of the things that people are all of a sudden expecting of you or wanting from you. And I think the film itself actually handles all of those things so well. It was actually quite a little bit emotional mm. for me. Mm. Yeah. How'd you go with that, um, Andy? I, that was interesting because I found that Erica Bryan, who's the art director, and Andrew Thomas, who's the cinematographer, were given such leeway and such freedom from um, from the director that it felt like there was... It was almost like the Wes Anderson case of being a bit suffocated by style, I felt, um, a lot of the film. But then there was... I don't know if it's too right to call it a dream sequence, but there was that sequence where mm. she's, which where it becomes more fairy tale like And that was it's where... It's there th- when she's asleep. That's kind of where the, the, the yeah. title comes from, I suppose. Yeah, mm. but that was the part where they really went to town and I loved that part mm. because I felt like up until that point, it was felt like an adult telling a fairy tale, basically, because mm-hmm. it was all very structured, very the house was very neat. It was very, how many 70s cliches can we throw into this into this first hour, essentially? You know, even down to the, the de- level of detail was great. Like, even the food at the party with the mm. pineapples on, all, the, all this stuff was just fantastic, I thought, <laughs> even though I've never, I don't remember that yeah. stuff because I'm not that old, but... Um, but when that uh, the dream sequence happened, that was where it became really, really, really interesting. And there was there was no there was no attempt to escape its stage origins. Mm-hmm. But instead, it had this kind of beautiful expressionistic quality. If, even during the outdoor scenes, it felt like they were shot in a stage in this sort of Night of the Hunter style mm-hmm. way, where that becomes this beautiful like intimacy, where you feel like you're still part of the fairy tale, but but at the same time, there's a genuine sense of threat just lingering around. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of shots of her against a black background, which I thought was really interesting because. Perhaps having never been a 14-year-old girl, there was a sense of pedophobia about it where you're not really sure um, what to do with all this silence and the camera just kind of holds on her face, on Bethany Moore's face, and against this black background. And that felt like a really unusual thing for like an adult to do, just to be looking at a 14-year-old girl and you know, and, and to give to have that bounce back at you as to how would you react, how do you interact with this person if you're not around a lot of teenage girls, they become kind of a bit scary. Like what? How? You know, how, how, but then maybe that's you know partly as well. Uh, as a fourteen year old girl, you also maybe don't know how to interact with others. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. Doing so there's well. lingering yeah. tension there, which in, in a David Lynch way you might have mm. like an underlying noise or a mechanical hums or something like that, but there's none of that here. It's just mm. her face, and that was so powerful yeah. and so interesting. I think it also, yeah, relates to not only do you not know how you're meant to relate to yourself, you're not quite sure how other people are relating to you. Like, there's a lot of really great sequences through the film where you can tell that characters are attempting to establish particular relationships with Greta, and she doesn't quite know what they want from her and what she's meant to represent to them, mm. and she gets a lot of fear out of that and not wanting to be seen in certain ways or not quite sure if she's ready to be seen in certain ways even though she may want certain things Mm, and it's yeah i feel like that that conflict so rarely gets expressed on film and and girls aren't allowed to kind of have that conflict by themselves without having you know that that another kind of gaze put upon Mm, them sort of thing Um, yeah, I really love this film, and it's shot. Mm. It's shot in four three as well, so it kind of has evokes this um, older and simpler uh, aesthetic approach mm. to storytelling, um, mm. and I suppose also connects to you know the theatrical origins in that way. Mm. True. I also really enjoyed though that even though it was obviously set set in the seventies, it also has a vaguely timeless feel to it, and also a very mm. contemporary feel to it. I particularly like the way how diverse Greta's school class was. Like, mm, I think yeah. this class was probably far more representative of what actual 70s Australia looked like than any 70s Australian television ever actually Definitely. showed. yeah. <laughs> that was really great. Mm, that's a yeah. good point. 
Um, do you think there's any coincidence in between uh, Girl Asleep and The Babadook being two of the most interesting Australian films of recent years, both directed by women and both produced by the South Australian Film Corporation? I think there's definitely something going on in the water in Adelaide. Mm. Um, South Australia has has done a lot of good cinema in the last couple of years, um, even beyond those two examples. I think that there's you know some really positive um, things happening. I really enjoyed how in interviews Rosemary Myers, the director, she was very deliberate about saying she was like, look, we're really happy that heaps of people really, really, clearly really enjoyed the film, but we specifically made this for teenagers. Yeah, and if right. anyone else gets anything out of it, that's great, but it's for teenagers. Yeah, that's really mm. special because you don't get that happening a lot. No. Um, but this film has been globally praised. I think it did debut in Adelaide last year yeah. and it's been to Berlin and it's been to... Mm, you know, won some any, audience awards. I yeah, think it's, it's won the Cinefest Cine mm. Oz Prize. Which is the richest film prize in Australia, yeah. which is exciting and I really hope they get to use some of that prize to hopefully make another movie. I'd yeah. love to see something else from these guys. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same. So that was Girl Asleep, which is playing in selected cinemas nationally, I think, at the moment. What we created here may be unique in all of human existence. All the way to top! We created a paradise. <laughs> what we're doing out here is so incredible. Our kids are amazing. You smoke. Mom needs to be in the hospital right now. Fantastic is a film about Viggo Mortensen, a father of six children. He's raising his children in a forest area in Washington State. Really beautiful. You know, he's got this big setup where they all produce their own food and make their own make their own entertainment off the land and everything. Um, so it kind of starts off as, you know, just this portrait of a family living off the grid. And then they find out that their mother, who has been hospitalised, has in fact died. So, you know, it becomes a road film, basically, and they have to go, they get on a bus, the family of seven gets on a bus, and they travel across a number of states in America to to make it in time for the funeral. So it's just this really, you know, kind of quite simple road movie uh, of a family crossing the country and, you know, a number of things and hiccups and whatnot happen along the way. Um, and then there is obviously, you know, some kind of final sequence, which we can't probably go into because we don't get to too many spoilers. In the end, I think it's maybe just a nice road movie. Starring Viggo Mortensen is probably the most, the thing that most people know about this movie. I think it's what's mainly drawing people as well, particularly if they know that he goes all full frontal in this. He does. <laughs> I certainly him. knew absolutely <laughs> nothing about this movie before I went to see it, which made it, you know, a quite an interesting experience. But anyway, did you? what did you think of this movie, Andy? Um, I thought this was really interesting in the way that it didn't shy away from the ethical issues it threw up. I mean, it would be quite easy to make... Uh, Viggo Mortensen into being some sort of modern day Jesus where he's giving some pretty rigorous homeschooling to those kids. Mm. I mean, they're all multilingual. They're all very well read. They have, you know, he has these rules like interesting is a non-word mm. when you've got to ask to describe something. So he's forcing critical thought into the kids. And there's some few great scenes where they get to show off this critical thought. And I always really like seeing intellectually curious children, particularly ones that are 
um, raised in such an interesting way, even if they are partly becoming mouthpieces for his um, social and political <laughs> um, beliefs. But that's a part of the, the flaws that I like seeing in, in these sorts of characters, so that we can't really deify them. And so instead, unlike a lot of other films that might look at similar issues, it really kind of probes into the good and the bad of all the major characters. It throws up some pretty serious challenges to um, not only family integrity, but a lot of the intellectual education that the kids have been getting. And it's good to be able to see that the, the, the kids aren't really seen as these sort of shallow characters. They're all kind of given their own personalities, they have their own different motivations. So I, I thought it was very satisfying. I really disagree with you. I think that it presents perhaps some of the derogatory elements that are coming out of the way that Viggo Mortensen is raising his children and suggests things like, you know, that they don't have any access to social situations, they don't know how to operate in, you know, quote-unquote, the real-world civilization. There's even this incredibly awful moment, I think, where his wife's father, who doesn't like his lifestyle, says the way that you make your children engage in incredibly heavy physical activity could possibly be seen as child abuse. All of that is forgotten and Viggo Mortensen is kind of, I believe that he is deified because the children have some moments where they say maybe we don't want this anymore, maybe we want a normal life. Made me incredibly uncomfortable as an audience member to be presented with this idea that maybe he is mistreating his children but we have to accept that. What did you make, Haley? Yeah, I'm kind of more on Eloise's side of things. I was kind of left a bit lukewarm and and I, I don't know. I felt like this film was very piecemeal. I felt like it had a lot of ideas mm. and it very much wanted to throw them all at you, kind of higgledy-piggledy, and there were really interesting kernels, like, all through this film. But I kind of never felt like any of them were really properly realised. I felt like... The, the, the way that Vigo was, was educating his children, the way it was kind of laid out, it, it didn't feel consistent. Like, there's the fact that there's the six-year-old who asks, you know, what's sexual intercourse and he gifts them a copy of The Joy of Sex, mm. yet the eldest son completely dissolves when he's confronted with a teenage girl that he cannot converse with at all because he's not being taught mm. how to. I just kind of felt like there were a lot of good ideas in this film that just kind mm. of didn't logically meet up at all into some kind of cohesive matter that ended up with things making sense, you know, and I kind of felt that the, the way that, yeah, the story threads as well would kind of go these interesting places and then just drop off. I mean, yeah. the fact that we're introduced to the, to the grandparents played by Frank Langella and Anne Dowd, who are completely different to how Vigo is like politically and and just just everything and you kind of get a couple of moments with them where you kind of realize oh they they are actually sympathetic people and they mm. have their ways of thinking like this and wanting to do these things for the children and then of course you just end up with this outcome where yeah the kids just leave they just up and leave to go with Vigo mm. and we never hear about the grandparents again who presumably would have thought that the children had been kidnapped or mm. run away or any or something like that and we just never hear any about them again and I just kind of feel like yeah this film felt like there was a lot of really good ideas that were just conveniently put in front of you to kind of you know excite you for five minutes mm. and then they just kind of dropped away and didn't do anything with them yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it didn't really bother me because I think the idea of it being neatly encapsulated just does is unrealistic. I mean, I would have appreciated a bit more, like you know, like you were saying, not to just have those parents disappear. I feel like felt like the editing was a bit sketchy, and there was quite a bit that was left out. But overall, I felt like that all the complexity 
it would have been an injustice to it to be able to give it a nice neat ending i mean it is problematic and it's meant to be problematic and i don't mm. think that's i didn't find that narratively dissatisfying mm-hmm. i felt like there was a compromise he kind of lost his vision his well there is a compromise you know vigo mortensen's character compromises his values but i think also that matt ross the writer director compromised his vision for this film um by maybe su- introducing some things that he thought he should he sh- thought that he should question his own kind of cinematic construct but in doing that he um he didn't follow it through far enough and maybe he just should have you know gone you know mm. um yeah. hit the bat you know straight through the mark yeah, um, I, I really hate using the term Sundance film as a pejorative because <laughs> I've been to Sundance. There's so many different things, you know, yeah. that, that, that you can see there that I feel like limiting the idea of the Sundance film down to the American indie is very limiting. Mm. But it does kind of feel like one of those American indie films that were designed for a very particular audience Mm. that would see it at Sundance and then that's how it ends up getting word of mouth and that's how it ends up being released in in American cinemas Mm. in particular. Like, I found myself thinking of Little Miss Sunshine, like, all the way through this. I mean, there's there's a quirky mode of transportation, there's corpse theft, there's, Mm. you know, all (laughs) these things that kind of lined up that you only ever see in American indies. And I just and the, kind of the yeah. actor who played the older son reminded me a lot of Paul Dano yeah. and his awkwardness and mm. everything. Did both of them win audience awards? Ah, uh, I don't think us. Uh, no, it didn't win an award at Sundance, but it won some kind of directing award at Cannes. Oh, really? Yeah. Captain Fantastic. Captain Fantastic did. Yeah, okay. I remember being surprised as well. Mm. Another issue that I had with it, and I feel this quite strongly, is that. Um, and I do hate to bring this up, but I think it's really important. Is that the only characters who were like um kind of instigators of change or whose decisions got to be heard in the and felt in the film were male characters Viggo Mortensen his wife's out of the picture obviously the only two kids who ever have any impact on story or who ever get to kind of like express their their opinions about their lifestyle are the two oldest sons um with the the parents-in-law Frank Langella as the father is the person who is stern and opposed and the mother figure has less to do mm. um, and she is you know the more kind of homely one yeah. which I found to be you know just, it's just a shame when mm. that happens basically I, but I felt like there were two there were two or perhaps three daughters but they were only you know used to kind of say Viggo Mortensen's character is amazing yeah, I really think this film, when you get down to it, it's really about battling patriarchies. Like, it, it, it's two different forms of, of men deciding that this is how these children should be raised in this mm. particular paradigm, and it's basically those two ideologies kind of battling it out. Like, mm. I'd, I'd sat there for a while, like, particularly once the grandmother character was introduced. I was kind of like, she should just round up all those kids and get them all in the bus and drive them all away from the bad dads. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I was I was quite disappointed in this film. I mean, it looks beautiful, um, and it does. You know, it's it's entertaining while while it lasts. But I think I'm I'm just a bit disappointed in it. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of like I walked out of it, and I had someone who who um, I bumped into j- directly afterwards ask me, "Oh, you know how how was the film?" And I actually really struggled being able to tell them about it. Like immediately after seeing yeah. it, that it just kind of washed over me yeah 
Oh, well, that happens and to then me out a lot to with sea. all movies. I Maybe guess. it's because yeah. I was brought up in a forest. Maybe that's why I felt yeah, such a bond with it. <laughs> it certainly felt pretty nostalgic because of those early opening well, scenes. Not, I do feel good. like that yeah. was the stronger part was the first half of the oh, film. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now on to movie. Yeah, so we are just going to chat about some of the films that are available to watch on MUBI now. Now, MUBI is a streaming service. There's an American, I believe also British and an Australian version, so all different films available in different territories around the world. But films sort of go on and they, they're on for 30 days, so you can view them for 30 days, which kind of, you know, it, it might be a little bit annoying if you don't get a chance to watch one in the 30 days that it's on, but it also makes it more exciting, I think more so than something like Netflix just has stuff on forever and you might never actually watch it because you think it's there forever so this mm. makes life a bit more exciting you know <laughs> kind of mixes up the home streaming service um, network yeah it's kind of good as well that you literally do get one new movie a day so yeah. you only have 30 films available at any one time so mm. it's not like Netflix where you just like add stuff to your list and then all of a sudden your queue is just massive and you're paralyzed with indecision every time you go to watch something you know, movies easy. You look, you see what's the new movie today. I don't feel like watching that one. I can scroll through 29 other films and pick from that. And that just for someone, particularly like me, who gets a lot of anxiety from indecision, <laughs> makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was initially a bit annoyed because I did suggest, why don't we just look at what's on Netflix? Because our listeners are going to be much more interested in that because they're much more likely to have a Netflix subscription. And until I looked at all this at the selection and the 30 films and I was like, mm. well, these are pretty much all things I would that fall into the, um, I know I should watch this and I probably will like it, but I won't get around to watching it category which Netflix never really yeah. bothers that much I know I think more people do have Netflix and I've, I know a few people that have movie subscriptions but I think that many more people that I know should have a movie subscription because it's it really is a great a great service mm. Mm. Um, anyway, so we're just going to be chatting briefly about two films that are on movie right now. Morvai Grain, which is known in English as either Bad Seed or Bad Blood. So this is uh, Billy Wilder's first directorial effort. He co-directed it, although by all accounts that I've read, the co-director didn't do much at all. But he co-directed it with a, a man named Alexander Esway. Um, now, he'd been writing films in Germany and France for a few years before this, and he made his directorial debut with Bad Seed, and then he, immediately afterwards, I think he went to the States. So it was the, you know, the first f and the only film that he directed in Europe up until this point. It's made in 1934, so, or released in 1934. So it's an early sound picture, uh, very, you know, still kind of has a lot of the influences of, of silent films and silent camera work. It starts in this really with this really great kind of imagery first of uh two circles of motor cars kind of circling around in um, opposite directions so kind of circular motion and then it cuts to like a kaleidoscope simulation circular motion and then the opening shot of the film is um, a shot of like a, a car tire or the inside of a car wheel so it, it gets set up immediately to be this film that is like about speed and velocity and and it is about cars so it follows the life of a kind of a young playboy named Henri Pasquier, um, whose father cuts him off to encourage him to stop being a playboy and to get off his ass and get a job. And so the first <laughs> scene is kind of like him at heads with his father saying, I'm not going to get a job, you know, only plebs have jobs or, you know, something similar, something as ridiculous as all that. Petit bourgeois. Yes. So anyway, he doesn't go and get a job. He resists the fact that his father cut him off and all he wants to do is impress the ladies. So he goes and he joins this gang of car 
thieves. Sounds, you know, like it is just about that. It, it kind of goes to interesting places. So he, he joins this gang of car thieves for, for quite a while. And then the last 15 minutes is actually really beautiful. It kind of evolves into this nice maybe love story or anyway you know just at least portrait of two young people in a in a heterosexual couple anyway i think it's a really beautiful film Mm, i thought it was interesting that it's the the whole way of him his money being cut off is represented by a car that Mm. he then spots and then inadvertently becomes drawn into this this web of car thieves and the love of a beautiful woman who also may or may not have (laughs) nefarious intentions Mm. um Mm. i thought uh, there was a lot of Billy Wilder in here. I thought it was a really beautiful characterization. It was really quite snappily put together. Mm. It does have um, a bit of a Fast and Furious vibe to it, I thought, if <laughs> that was shot in the 1930s. Oh, Paris. Yeah. There's lots of beautiful shots of Paris pre-Second pre- World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really so gorgeous. there wasn't a lot of budget, so they couldn't have, they didn't have a soundstage, so they had to shoot it on the streets of Paris. Oh, which so is there a is real that, winner yeah. for yeah. anybody mm. watching it today. Yeah. yeah. What did you make yeah. of it? I really, really enjoyed most of it. Like, it's, it's really fast-paced, which is excellent. I really love films, uh, particularly from the early sound period, where you get the feeling that the filmmakers are also holding on to particular uh, traits from silent cinema as well. Like, there's a lot of of swipe editing. There's a lot of, um, you get people's reactions rather than them actually saying things. There's lots of montaging going on, that sort of thing. I was particularly really excited once I realised that this was a very early film role for Danielle Derrière, who is one of the great you know, actresses mm. of French cinema, and she's still with us today. She is really? 99 years old. Oh, uh, Maybe I, we should send her this podcast. Yes, that was, yes no, I, I, I think one of the most recent things she did was she was the voice of the grandmother in Persepolis. Oh, so. great, great. Yeah, great. And, and she was wonderful. She had one of those lovely, expressive, like, early cinema faces that just, you know, lit up the screen. Um, yeah, I must admit, towards the end, I did get a little bit frustrated. I think only because I think, you know, we were meant to feel like the lead character was redeemed in some way, but I kind of just felt he was just an ass all the <laughs> way through <laughs> and resulted in quite a lot of death and destruction in he the did. end. I mean, what, was he meant to be redeemed? You know, I read mm. I read something that basically said that this was uh, an incredible opportunity for Billy Wilder because he, mm. he didn't, there was, you know, no production code when he made it. So as mm. soon as he went to America, he had to abide by all of these rules. But in this film, you know, the lead character who was, a criminal didn't have to, you know, he didn't have didn't to have be to have killed come or up didn't have to, yeah, mm. he just mm. got to, you know, go and continue on his life with, with no res- no responsibilities and anything. So I thought that was quite good. It was, yeah. it, it, it did present them quite beautifully, you know, mm. they kind of jump on this truck and go down some mm. coastal, beautiful coastal yeah, it's road. Mm. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and continue, yeah. you know, continue their love affair and possibly their their crime spree. Mm. Um, Into Africa. Yeah, mm. but, but I think definitely if you're a Billy Wilder fan, this is just like such an amazing thing to stumble across and be able to watch and kind of Absolutely. think in the context of his of his later American career. Yeah, mm. and so it's on Mubi for five more days. So yeah, catch up. it. Yeah, yeah, catch it if you can. What great force made a lovely girl choose self-imprisonment? Estella, you must leave this house. It's a dead house. Nothing can live here. What was the brooding secret of a young man's childhood? The brilliant team of film craftsmen that brought this happy breed, blithe spirit and brief encounter to the screen have gone to Charles Dickens for their latest story. Not because he is a classic writer, but because he is the greatest storyteller of all time. Because no one can portray more faithfully than Dickens the hopes and doubts that dwell in the heart of a boy.
or hold you poised so perilously between a smile and a lump in the throat. Um, and we also had a look at Great Expectations, the David Lean classic from 1946. It's a film that I think uh, is it's always put up towards the top of the best British films of all time, and it's mm. always seen as a seminal adaptation of the Charles Dickens book. And by all accounts, they agonised for a long time over p- putting it together and, and creating the screenplay, which seems to flow really effortlessly and with a strange sort of grace that you don't often see in f- book adaptations. Mm. So essentially it tells the story, for those who aren't familiar with Great Expectations, about um, Pip, who's a boy who's brought up as a son of a blacksmith, and so through a series of fairly unlikely and fortuitous events, he's taken through to the very top part of British society. So there's, this, uh, there's a lot of guilt associated with Pip's um, moving up to the upper class, of course the love of the girl that he fell for as a teenager or as a pre-teenager while she well, she was a teenager yeah i really adored this film it's just so it's just painted so beautifully it paints a portrait you know of this particular time in england um in coastal england and then in in london so evocatively the production design is extraordinary and the cinematography getting the you know shadows there's this great, you know, kind of location cinematography with uh, the marshes, and then there's um, a mixture, you know, they kind of mix this with studio photography of this great graveyard, you know, misty. Um, and I've actually been to a graveyard in England that looked exactly like that <laughs> with a church in the background. It was in Whitby oh, in yeah. North Yorkshire. Right. Um, okay. and was I was, was the church actually three foot tall like the one in the set for this one because they did a lot of long shotting? Right. <laughs> yes, no, but there is a lot of long shotting and mm. David Lean has this extraordinary way of panning and editing and framing that is just, you know, you can see that it is the same director basically making all of these decisions, but he's just got such a grasp on it. Mm. But the, I just, sorry, I just wanted to mention like, and this is obvious. I'm sure we'll all want to talk about it, but the set of Miss Havisham's house <laughs> is just extraordinary. You know, you go inside and it looks like, you know, this incredible gothic mansion. You know, we all love a gothic mansion in this mm-hmm. room. Um, hopefully a lot of our <laughs> listeners do too. But, you know, go into the um, upstairs into Miss Havisham's room and her as a character is this woman who, as she says to Pip, hasn't seen the sun sunlight since before he was born. So she's locked herself in this room and there's the first shot that kind of suggests that is Pip looks at her bureau and the Bible is just cloaked in spider webs. So she hasn't even opened the Bible, you know, in thirty years or something, which is just a really incredible kind of comment for, for someone in um, in Britain in 1946 to be doing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I find it absolutely extraordinary the fact that apparently David Lean had not read a lick of Dickens before making mm. this film because <laughs> it feels almost like the quintessential Dickens film. It's certainly the quintessential Great Expectations. Like, I've seen a lot of versions of Great Expectations and all of them call back to this. Perhaps most effectively, actually, the South Park episode yeah. on Great Expectations yeah. is just very, very much indebted to this film. <laughs> yeah, I just found it absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's so easy to watch. It's the sort of film that probably a lot of people have seen in classrooms. I certainly think that it feels like something it harks back to a day of cinema where you could pretty much get on a train anywhere in the UK and know that at least 90% of the train had seen <laughs> Great Expectations mm. or had been brought up with the book at least and would know who Miss Havisham was. So it feels like this sort of era of when cinema could really unite an entire culture in a way that maybe mm. it, it can't do so much anymore now. That, mm. um, because it is so classically told, it is such becomes such a, um, a common text to hark back to when making other films or when looking to other adaptations. 
Yeah, this influenced, you know, a lot of horror cinema, influenced Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard with, you know, the presentation of the mansion and the Mm. interiors. All the charms. Just kind of unkept. I loved it. And I I think I have seen Alfonso Cuaron's 1998 version of Great Expectations. I've forgotten most of it except for the moment where Pip and um, Estella meet up again in their adult life and the way that Alfonso Cuaron does it is like at a water bubbler and basically Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow have a smooch at the water bubbler. <laughs> anyway, that's the only bit of that I can remember. But I haven't read the book, it's and I haven't for a good reason. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen any other adaptations. But I know who all the characters are because mm. you know Dickens is so prevalent in society. I know who Miss Havisham is because she's kind of referenced in so much other stuff, or at least in conversation. You know, mm. my parents taught me who all of these Dickens characters were before I even read them because they're part of our um, language now. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also worth talking about the. Like the actual enormous wealth of amazing British actors that are just like packed into this. Mm. You know, there's of course John Mills, who I do have to point out when he's first introduced and he's meant to be 20 years old. John Mills was not 20 years old (laughs) when he made this movie. No, but he did have very nice hair. (laughs) He did have Mm. enormously great windswept hair. It was amazing. It's also one of the early performances of uh, Gene Simmons, Mm. Valerie Hobson, and of course it's the first major screen appearance of. Of Alec Guinness, mm. which is very, very important. Apparently, David Lean actually saw him in a stage production of Grey Expectations in the role of Mr. Pocket and took him and also the same actress who played Miss Havisham took them from right. the stage role, the stage version, and put them on this film. And I think mm. it's, yeah, apart from uh, Alec Guinness's very obvious wig, which apparently <laughs> was enormously uncomfortable and he was very, very nervous, not just because it was his first big film role but also he just wanted to like rip the top of his head off for the entire <laughs> time he was fi- filming but I, yeah I, I loved every time Guinness was on screen he just had such energy just yeah. like almost immediately and yes I don't know if that's just me being a massive <laughs> Guinness fangirl maybe but, yeah. I'm not a big big Guinness fangirl so oh, alas yeah, alas <laughs> so I think it would be a big John Mills fangirl because oh because I'm his, named after his, his daughter, daughter yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> I do greatly enjoy John Mills as well so I think this this film is really fun if you do enjoy playing um classical English actor bingo mm. <laughs> and I just want to mention I I'm sure that someone has written about this extensively but I haven't you know had kind of the opportunity to go and read up on it to it to a great a great deal um but the amount of dust in this movie is mm. just incredible that you know Miss Havisham's room is obviously so dusty but like obviously everywhere else you know because um Pip comes from you know a, a laborer's family so his home is quite dirty in London even you know London during this time was quite dusty on the streets and you can just see it but I mean most particularly in Miss Havisham's room in the cobwebs but also in the air and I was thinking about it because I know that Billy Wilder during the production of Double Indemnity because dust particles actually do not show up on 35 millimeter film prints so he had to kind of get this very particular stone or like some type of sand and kind of sprinkle it through the air to make this dust show up on film. 
Um, and David Lean must have done something similar. Um, it was just mm. but like the mm. volume of it is is so great. And mm. I watched it today and I have had very bad hay fever all day. And so it kind of just increased my discomfort with my hay fever and the dust on screen anyway. So it was very effective mm. for, for me. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I I think yeah. If if you have a movie subs- movie subscription, you really should watch this one. It's an mm. it's a glorious mm. restored mm. version from, from, from Criterion. It's Criterion from from, yeah. from the BFI. Mm. So it's it's a beautiful beautiful thing to watch, even if you're sitting on your little iPad mm. or whatever. Yeah, because I had the DVD of it, and it was like mm. watching it for the first time in this, yeah. this version. Glorious. Oh, so They've restored. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A really big difference, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, get Mubi. Go check out all of the other great stuff. I'm looking forward to watching some Roger Corman. <gasps> Roger, Roger Corman shows up on there quite regularly, so, <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, thank thank you, Eloise, for bullying me into a subscription in order oh, to do this episode. It's actually probably the best thing I've done in a while. <laughs> cool. Oh, well, I'm glad to um, I'm glad to help. Cool. Thank you very much for listening up to the end of episode nine of Cultural Capital. Um, please, if you're not already, please follow us on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod or find us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. And um, where can we find you online, Haley? Oh, I am on the tweets. I'm at Haley H A Y L E Y underscore Sass S A S S. And I'm on Twitter at Eloise L O Ross. And I'm at Andy Ricky R I C K I E. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.